Is there something... Is there something wrong? Warning. Life support failure on all decks. Abandon ship. Maybe it is time to take command. Bridge to Captain... Join Jan Shaw updating current events as only Jan can. Library computer. Data being received. Produced by CosmicReality.com Hello and welcome to this week's Cosmic Creating Show. It's the Saturday edition. My name is Jan Shaw. I'm known as the Success Alchemist. You can find me at the successalchemist.net, the webalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com, Facebook and YouTube, Jan Shaw, the Success Alchemist, and Twitter at Coach Jan Shaw. Today is the 30th of April, 2022, and the title of today's show is Ministry of Truth, Durham Latest, Vax Injuries, and Jill's Book Tanks. So there's quite a bit to cover today. I wasn't able to fit Durham uh, updates in on Wednesday's show, so um, I decided I would cover them today because we've had more information about his investigation and the grand jury and so on. So I'll be covering that second. But first of all, we have this story about Biden's Department of Homeland Security setting up a disinformation governance board, which people are quite rightly retitling Ministry of Truth, which relates to the book 1984 by George Orwell. And in the book, he he lays out that if it says Ministry of Truth, it's Ministry of Lies, everything is reversed, which is what we're experiencing in this crazy time that we're living through. And um, there are many articles out there on this subject. Uh, the one I'm going to cover is from Revolver, and it's by Nolte. I think, I think that's the case because it's referred in quite a number of other articles, one of which being Breitbart, but on Revolver, the title is Here's Everything the Media Won't Tell You About Nina Yankovic, Biden's New Minister of Truth. Just when you thought the globalist American empire couldn't get more Orwellian, the Department of Homeland Security is here to make it all worse. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas testified Wednesday that the Department of Homeland Security is creating a disinformation governance board to combat misinformation ahead of the 2022 midterms. That's from Fox News. The timing of the announcement is symbolically fitting given recent warnings from journalists, NGOs and prominent Democrat senators that the prospect of Elon Musk restoring free speech to Twitter constitutes a, in quotes, danger to our democracy. It is only right, then, that one of our nation's largest national security bureaucracies should set up a special governance board to address the threat of so-called disinformation that emerges when speech isn't entirely controlled by the regime and its proxies. The DHS has not said much about what the Disinformation Governance Board will actually do, but Politico's brief write-up on the announcement offers some clues. 
DHS is standing up a new disinformation governance board to coordinate countering misinformation related to homeland security, focused specifically on irregular migration and Russia. Nina Yankovic will head the board as executive director. She previously was a disinformation fellow at the Wilson Centre, advised the Ukraine Foreign Ministry as part of the Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship and oversaw Russia and Belarus programmes at the National Democratic Institute. In case you're not up to date on government-approved euphemisms, irregular migration is the new politically correct term for what used to be called illegal immigration. We dare the reader to Google irregular migration and consult what images pop up. Given that the DHS has become a de facto full-service travel agency for illegal aliens pouring over the border, it makes sense that the same agency would want to label any criticism of its policies as dangerous disinformation. That Russia also falls under the DHS's new Ministry of Disinformation's portfolio is arguably even more ridiculous. Didn't we just learn that the Hunter Biden laptop story which dozens of media outlets and former intelligence officials demanded to censor as Russian disinformation, turned out to be totally true and legitimate. The specific choice of the Department of Homeland Security to host this new governance board is telling. In 2020, the Trump DHS released a report claiming that white supremacy was the single greatest security threat facing America, Mere months ago, the DHS raised the national threat level on the grounds that misinformation about COVID-19 or the 2020 election would drive extremist violence. And it quotes from the DHS, key factors contributing to the current heightened threat environment include the proliferation of false or misleading narratives which sow discord or undermine public trust in US government institutions. For example, there is widespread online proliferation of false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19. Grievances associated with these themes inspired violent extremist attacks during 2021. I didn't see any of those, did you? Malign foreign powers have and continue to amplify these false or misleading narratives in efforts to damage the United States. In 2002, this is the article continuing, Congress created the DHS to, among other things, secure America's border from foreign threats. Now, 20 years on, the DHS has repurposed itself to target as domestic terrorists the Americans who complain about what is crossing America's border. No development could better illustrate how, over the past two decades, the American security state apparatus has evolved from a shield that guards the American people into a weapon that targets them. Need to remember, of course, that these parents showing up at school boards to protest all the very inappropriate material being provided to children uh, were also deemed to be domestic terrorists. But the establishment of the DHS's Ministry of Disinformation wouldn't be a proper intelligence community project unless it was absurd as well as dystopian. 
For the absurdity, we, lead, we need to look no further than Nina Yankovic, the disinformation wizard appointed to protect the American people from dangerous speech about illegal immigration and Russia. So who exactly is Nina Yankovic? Certainly not a person with any concerns about preserving freedom of speech or expression. A quick look at her Twitter history is enough to dispel that. When Facebook permanently banned Donald Trump from its service, Nina was in the wings complaining that this punishment was not harsh enough. Through a metaphor, Nina explained that only mass bans on hundreds or thousands of accounts would be enough to fix the disinformation problem. And it shows the tweets, the Facebook Oversight Board will announce its decision on whether to uphold the platform's post-January 6th ban on President Trump tomorrow. It will have momentous consequences for political speech around the world, but for countering disinfo, it's somewhat of a distraction. A few years ago, the main thoroughfare near my neighbourhood got realigned and the county put in some nice landscaping, which quickly got neglected and overgrown with weeds. A little sapling started growing and by the fall had grown into quite a plucky woody weed tree, thriving amidst a bed of poison ivy that Jake, to my dismay, relishes walking through on our morning strolls. This story has a point, I promise. Being the good citizen that I am, I reported the unsightly weeds to the county. They dispatched an industrial lawn mowing crew that buzzed over the whole area, leaving a stump where our weedy sapling once stood and chopping up the poison ivy. Needless to say, the next spring the weed tree came back with a vengeance. The poison ivy got more ropey, and adding insult to injury, the sad little evergreen shrubs they put in got a bagworm infestation. Do yourself a favour and don't look up what bagworms are before bed. I continue to report the overgrowth now spilling onto the sidewalk. The sapling is now about eight feet tall. The work it will take to get the area cleaned up is now significantly greater than previous years. The tree will have to be dug up, the weeds ripped out, new landscaping planted and maintained. Gardens don't just grow, they require upkeep. The same is true of a social network. This is a whole series of tweets. I, I guess you would realise that. In this scenario, Trump is the weed tree that is lobbed off on the surface but has a network of roots underground that will keep him and his rhetoric coming back. We're going to be paying a lot of attention to what the Oversight Board decides tomorrow and autocrats around the world will be especially interested. But we should be clear that the networks that gave rise to Trump and allowed January 6th to happen are much broader than one man. So that's the end of that thread. Yankovic loves to chastise the peasant masses for thinking they deserve free speech on big tech platforms. Didn't they read the terms of service? Don't they know this platform is owned by a private corporation? And there's another tweet. When you clicked, I agree to the terms of service. Free speech is not and has never been guaranteed on a private platform. And the tweet has a screenshot of another tweet by Cheryl Atkinson, who, if you're not familiar with her, she's a very independent journalist who I think left one of the fake news media companies. I can't remember which one um, because she wasn't going to be a party to all the fake news that was being put out. This 
tweet from her says, when did we decide as Americans that it's okay for government and third parties to censor stroke curate our info, that we cannot be trusted with unfiltered info, that we should only be able to find info that they tell us is true on matters that are opinion or in legitimate dispute, hashtag slippery slope. But Nina's blathering about private platforms is all fake posturing. In 2019, she loudly demanded that Congress intervene with more restriction and regulation of online speech. Another tweet. And they are still confusing more speech with free speech. Technology is not an unadulterated societal good that sprinkles people with First Amendment fairy dust at each login. And it's got a screenshot of an article from Slate.com. Mark Zuckerberg's goal for 2019 shows he is still living in the past. Zuckerberg seems to think Facebook users are stupid. And she goes on, but the tech platforms aren't the only ones at fault. The next presidential election is a year away and Congress has done little in the way of election security or social media regulation. It's unlikely any serious changes can be implemented before next November. As is virtually always the case, the woman shrieking about disinformation hidden in every shadow and behind every potted plant is herself an, adi- an avid purveyor of politically motivated lies. In 2020, Yankovic joined every other shill of the deep state in calling Hunter Biden's obviously real laptop a Russian influence op. She tweets, back on the laptop from hell, apparently. Biden notes 50 former NATSEC officials and five former CIA heads that believe the laptop is a Russian influence op. Trump says Russia, Russia, Russia. In fact, Nina even characterized criticism of the 2016 Russian collusion hoax as, you guessed it, a Russian intel op. Tweeting again, before you dive further into the president's Twitter feed, read this summary by Natasha Bertrand, Kyle D. Cheney, Andrew Desiderio. And remember, this entire scandal is predicated on a Russian intelligence report likely planted to undermine the US. Um, There's a screenshot of a Politico article. Trump rewrites the Russia probe from the hospital the president declassified intelligence documents. If you're hungry for more, Tucker Carlson has even more of such Nina material covered in his fantastic monologue from this week. I'm not going to play that. As it happens, Nina and Revolver have something of a history together. Two years ago, during the 2020 election campaign, Revolver ran a groundbreaking investigative series on so-called colour revolutions. In essence, we exposed how many national security professionals who specialised in the colour revolution regime change model overseas were employing the same tactics against Trump. In the aftermath of our reporting, Nina joined a veritable army of disinformation journalists doing damage control though Nina was a little too dim to properly understand what was going on. Here is the disinformation expert Nina reassuring her followers that national security professionals would never dare turn their tools inward against the American people, and still more important, that colour revolutions have nothing to do with race. You may have seen the term colour revolution floating around social media the past few days, she tweets. 
Let's talk about what they are and why the US isn't a candidate for one. She then um, posts a video of herself explaining this, which is over two minutes long. I'm not going to play it. Um, the article explains Yankovic says that a color revolution couldn't happen in America because color revolutions happen in autocracies. Wow, Nina, the national security establishment and their media allies would never describe Trump as an autocrat. Ten ways Trump is becoming a dictator election edition. This is a screenshot from Voice. Uh, the closer the president gets to election day, the bigger the threat he poses to U.S. democracy by Stephen M. Walt, a columnist at Foreign Policy and the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Relations at Harvard University. And then a Levin report, Donald Trump goes full dictator, vows to stay in office regardless of election results. This is by Bess Levin. The president refuses to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. And then um, another article, I don't know which where this is from. Historians and election experts warn Trump is behaving like Mussolini and despots that the U US usually condemns. That was by John Haltiwanger, September 25th, 2020. And that's all just from the same month that Yankovic made her video. So why is Nina so angry at somebody criticising the colour revolution model? Naturally, because Nina herself is the perfect representative of it. The fake democracy enthusiast who splits time between overthrowing governments abroad and suppressing free expression at home. Nina used to work for the National Democratic Institute, a group funded by National Endowment for Democracy, USAID and the State Department, among other agencies. NDI played a major role in Ukraine's 2004 Orange Revolution, pretty much the archetypal colour revolution. During her own time at NDI, Yankovich managed democracy assistance programmes in Belarus and Russia, and then received a Fulbright grant to provide strategic communications advice to the Ukrainian government. Back in the US, meanwhile, Nina's scholarly talents cover topics like gendered disinformation. She invented the term, you know. And another tweet from her, since moving back from Ukraine five years ago, I've dedicated my time to building awareness about the challenges of disinformation and the best practices from my research to overcome them. My writing, congressional stroke parliamentary testimonies and more. And it's a link to wikipedia.com slash portfolio. And then another tweet. More recently, my work has become personal as I've researched gendered disinformation, a subset of online abuse that affects many women in public life and has touched me too. I coined the term in 2017 and led a comprehensive study about it. WilsonCenter.org slash publication slash, and I don't see the rest of the link, but uh, it's titled Malign Creativity, How Gender, Sex and Lies Are Weaponized Against Women Online. All external evidence reveals that Nina herself is a mediocre talent holding conventional regime-approved beliefs. Her very blandness, though, is what makes her interesting. Nina Yankovic isn't a person but an archetype. 
modern government apparatchiks are no longer suited up G-men and they certainly aren't the suave James Bond types the intelligence community would like us to believe populate the bureaucracies. Instead, the forces of democracy are an army of Nina's Jankovic. And a tweet from Frog Butt. What is this physiognomy? Sensor Frau of Doom. <laughs> and there are two images, one of um, Nina on the left and another one. I don't know who the other person is. I'm not sure. But actually, <laughs> Nina looks like a guy. I wonder if she's another trans. Um, just take a look at the images if you can find if you google her and you'll be uh, surprised <laughs> or not for whatever reason the regime has decided that the best commissars for enforcing anti-disinformation speech codes are slightly unstable highly sensitive young women who suffer from imposter syndrome again two more tweets my end of pandemic state of being is a very confusing mix of fomo and burnout what a delight i don't know what the fomo is and another one oh and the constant slow burn of imposter syndrome but i'm used to that jerk by now okay for whatever reason may be misleading the reason the regime uses these house frows of doom is clear because Nina and her ilk are natural commissars, relentlessly targeting their ideological enemies while casting any and all criticism as harassment, which of course requires further censorship and speech control to prevent. While well-adjusted people might just ignore trolls or share particularly funny bits with friends, for Nina, every random troll is a justification for the end of the First Amendment itself. And she tweets again, guess he got a lot out of my disinformation analysis. And this was replying, I don't know who it was, it's been crossed out. Saw you on television recently and you are very pretty. <laughs> and she'd got in her tweet, hashtag how to be a woman online. Uh, another tweet, I've been reminded that writing about social media regulation brings all the First Amendment zealots out of the woodwork. Implementing common sense transparency regulations on advertising is not a restriction on free speech. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. And another tweet, ah yes, this very much sounds like someone who is concerned that everyone has the right to free speech. And again, replying to a tweet that the author is uh, scrub, scribbled out, uh, replying to at Wikipedia, at Post Opinions and at Amy Klobuchar. Shut up, censoring communist. You don't get to choose what's information worthy of viewing. Just parrot what you're told by your masters like a good little girl and we'll decide if it's worth a damn. Move to China if you want a social credit score. Her latest book opens with a hypothetical description of non-existent real-life harassment. The intended moral, according to Nina herself, is that society should call the police to arrest men who make patronising comments online. Um, Helen Andrews tweets, more hypothetical comments from her trolls, who, in her imaginary scenario, have all gathered in one place. And Helen Andrews includes some uh, screenshots from of the text from her book and ends by saying, um, the point, she explains, is that if you or I observe such behaviour in real life, we would call the police and law enforcement might make some arrests. Really? 
Personally, I would not call the police if I overheard a man say something patronising on a train. Unsurprisingly, Nina is a Twitter bestie with both Taylor Lorenz of the Washington Post and Brandy Zadrozny of NBC News. Lorenz and Zadrozny, I think that's how you pronounce it, are both middle-aged commiss- commissarettes whose job it is to dox anonymous political dissidents to ruin their lives. Recently, and now infamously, the disgraced Taylor Lorenz wrote a piece in the Washington Post exposing the identity of a popular conservative account, Libs of TikTok. Of course, anyone who dares criticise these journalists, and Nina too, is guilty of harassment and misogyny. See how that works? Nina tweets, I'm so sorry, Taylor, we're with you. And again, one of the best reporters on the disinfo beat, Brandy Zadrozny, is being harassed today because she is exposing a small part of the disinformation machine for the flimsy filth that it is. I respect Brandy, her work, her bravery, her intellect and her morals. Two years ago, Revolver News ran a major piece on Brandy Zadrozny exposing the creepy and invasive methods she would employ to dig up dirt on Trump supporters in order to ruin their lives. Zadrozny essentially doxes people for a living and even wrote a guide on how to do it. She loves to brag about her efforts too. The Columbia Bugle tweets, At Darren J. Beatty, we see these journalists are not even acting as meaningful journalists. What they're doing is acting as commissars and neo-Stasi effectively in order to crush the rebellion of the American people against their corrupt ruling class. And it goes on, on how at Darren J. Beatty, on how the MSM uses the term disinformation to silence and destroy the lives of Trump supporters. Darren adds that some of these doxing efforts against Trump supporters are even funded by taxpayer dollars. And both of these tweets have clips from Fox News' Tucker Carlson. Zadrozny's goal is to ruin reputations, cost people their jobs and get them censored online. Oddly enough, the disgraced Brandy Zadrozny infamously extended far more sympathy and compassion for a child predator caught trying to meet a 14-year-old boy than she ever did to the Trump supporters and vaccine sceptics whose lives she attempted to destroy. Nina was, of course, outraged that Revolver's Darren Beatty dared to expose such an upstanding journalist as Brandy Zadrozny. How dare one question our commissars, especially female commissars? Don't you know that's harassment? Uh, Nina tweets, before coming for Brandy for doing her job, Darren Beatty and his followers spent the past month harassing me for calling out his unfounded allegations that a colour revolution is happening in the US. It's the worst harassment I've ever experienced and Darren won't disown it. And Ben Collins' tweet um, is included in this, replying to at one underscore. Had Tucker looked into this, his guest was emailed by Brandy the day before about a story she's doing about his website. He spent the day tweeting retributively at her. That wasn't mentioned. Seems pretty important to include. And the guest is this guy, and it's a CNN link. Unsurprisingly, the children of the corn extra Gen Saki, more recently of White House spokeswoman fame, 
full-throatedly endorsed Yankovic and her extensive qualifications and disclosed TV uh, on Twitter says, Now, Psaki on new Biden admin disinformation czar. She is an expert, a person with extensive qualifications. Meanwhile, Nina is particularly obsessed and sensitive concerning the danger of stupid, meaningless jabs about her appearance or her Harry Potter superfan past. Oh, did we forget to mention that? We probably should. Some people are former criminals. Other people used to dress badly, but Nina has a far darker secret. Back in 2005, she was part of a wizard rock band. Yes, as in Harry Potter wizards. From 2005 to 2018, Nina was keyboardist and vocalist for the Moaning Myrtles, a pair of Ravenclaws. Yes, they gave themselves a Hogwarts house who sang musical works inspired by J.K. Rowling's novels. And it tweet, there's a tweet from Ironic Effort Poster. Nina Yankovic could have been a multi-platinum wizard rock star, but when duty called, she devoted her talents to eradicating cyber sexism in Belarus, a modern-day Glenn Miller. She went from singing about Voldemort to overthrowing real-life Voldemorts like Trump and Lukashenko. Some acts linked with the moaners include the butterbeer experience, the parcel mouths and the whomping willows. Nina retired in 2011 but came out of retirement after the 2016 election to perform a crossover Potter stroke resistance song celebrating the actual Potter character Moaning Myrtle whose canonical name is, we are not making this up, Myrtle Elizabeth Warren. Ironic effort poster again. The adrenaline rush of an adoring crowd comes second only to discovering that a Biden can't draw a clock meme got four retweets in Shkinvali. I don't really understand what that means. And it goes on a second time. A, de a decade later, Nina Yankovic combined her passion for wizard rock and exporting feminism abroad with her magnum opus, Nevertheless, I Persisted, Myrtle Elizabeth Warren. This next little ditty takes the cake. In the Moaning Myrtle smash hit number, Prefects Are Hot, Biden's new Minister of Truth, Nina Yankovic, sings an ode to the magic wand in between Harry Potter's legs. You know they call me Moaning Myrtle for a reason, she croons. However silly she may be, the case of Nina Yankovic reveals how real threats to American liberty manifest in 2022. For the globalist American empire, it's not enough to be evil and dystopian. Everything must be laughably stupid too. Nina Yankovic is far, far more likely to substantively curtail your personal freedom than Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin. And her new job demonstrates a crucial truth about the entire modern censorship regime. Ultimately, all private sector censorship is an appendage of the regime. Since their 2016 humiliation, America's ruling class have been able to count on the hyper-left employees at Twitter and Facebook to make sure that private sector control of information steadily tightens without a pesky court stepping in to impose the First Amendment. But all the same, the Twitter and Facebook censors have never been acting autonomously. When they allow the Russia hoax to spread everywhere while suppressing Hunter Biden's laptop, 
and ban anti-woke users by the thousands, they are enforcing the ideology of the globalist American empire. Now, at the exact moment that Twitter's reliability as an ideological enforcer is in doubt, the government itself is suddenly taking a more direct role in censorship-adjacent activities. This should surprise no one, as entrepreneur and angel investor Naval Ravikant recently observed. And his tweet says, If Elon Musk manages to liberate Twitter, efforts to control free speech will move to the Apple-Google level and then to the national level. Even Nina seems to understand this is what's really going on. In 2020, she went on CNN to explain that Russian disinformation isn't about fake news, but simply sharing real news that exacerbates pre-existing fissures which is a roundabout way of defining disinformation as true things I don't want the public to hear. And another tweet from Nina, great convo with at Marka, I don't know what who they are, anyway, on Russian disinformation this evening. As we go through 2020, we do well to remember that Russia's strategy isn't about creating fakes or duping people, but exacerbating pre-existing fissures and sentiments to create chaos. Now, from her posting at DHS, Nina will be free to issue expert decrees about which stories are worthy news and which are exacerbating pre-existing fissures to create chaos and really should just not be around at all. Do you think there's any doubt which stories and which sources Nina will want suppressed? And that's the end of this very long <laughs> and quite humorous at times article. And of course, you know, many people have been pointing out the um, coincidence of the timing of this just after Twitter was or is being taken over by Elon Musk. And we've already seen some people who were banned from Twitter reappearing like Mike Lindell uh, I know there's several more. I can't just remember the names at the moment, but he's certainly one that is back and, and tweeting. OK, so let's move on to the latest in the Durham investigation. And I'm going to start with one from Technofog uh, on Substack. Durham's latest. He has hundreds of emails between Fusion GPS and reporters. This was from April 25th. Special counsel John Durham just filed this motion in response to the efforts of Hillary for America, Fusion GPS et al. to keep secret by use of the attorney-client and work product privileges communications involving Fusion GPS. And it's got a link to um, the motion you can read in full. Durham states the purported privilege holders who have intervened to do so in a case in which the defendant has denied representing any client when he brought the Russian Bank One allegations to the FBI. The privilege controversy thus entraps Sussman to a certain extent seemingly precluding his denial that he was working on behalf of a client. Brilliant. Additionally, Durham cast doubt on the declaration of Mark Elias that Fusion GPS was retained to provide legal advice. Here he makes a key point. If rendering such advice was truly the intended purpose of Fusion GPS's retention, one would also expect the investigative firm to seek permission and or guidance from Hillary for America or its counsel before sharing such derogatory materials with the media or otherwise placing them into the public domain. 
In support of that point, Durham states he is in possession of hundreds of emails in which Fusion GPS employees shared raw, unverified and uncorroborated information, including their own draft research and work product, with reporters. He even filed them under seal with the court. These include emails with Slate's Franklin Foer from May 14, 2016, in which Fusion GPS conveys information on a Trump advisor and Alpha Bank. July 26, 2016, emails from Fusion GPS to the Wall Street Journal communicating allegations from Christopher Steele stating a Trump advisor meeting with former KGB official close to Putin would be huge news. July 29th and July 31st, 2016, emails with a reporter, Washington Post Tom Hamburger, concerning Carter Page's investments and meetings with Russians, of which the reporter said it's bullshit. July 27, 2016, emails between an ABC News reporter, Matthew Mosk, and Fusion GPS concerning Sergey Millian. Fusion GPS responded with a comprehensive report regarding Millian. Fusion GPS communications with New York Times reporters pushing more dirt on Millian. This email from a Fusion GPS co-founder to the New York Times dated October 31st, 2016, pushing the Alpha Bank allegations and stating the US government is investigating. As a screenshot from this and the highlighted part says, big story on the Trump Alpha server moving early PM. Off the record, United States government absolutely investigating. Campaign will light up, I imagine. And then it also keeps going and shares quite a number of other emails um, from Fusion GPS. As Durham makes clear, no lawyers are copied in these emails and this doesn't have anything to do with legal advice. And even if there were some type of privilege or work product, it was waived when Fusion GPS distributed the info to the press. There are a number of other important observations. The Fusion GPS witness who will testify is the tech maven referenced in their emails with the New York Times. This appears to be confirmation that Laura Sego will be the Fusion GPS employee to testify. Durham also destroys the declarations of John Podesta and Robbie Mook on behalf of Hillary for America stating Mook has stated Perkins Coy was to handle and oversee international opposition research. Mook also received general updates concerning these findings, though he says he was unaware who had been specifically retained. As to Joffe's privilege arguments, they fail because Perkins Coy hired Fusion GPS to assist HFA and the DNC, not Joffe. Today's filing follows a series of interesting developments disclosed in these last few days. On Friday, April 22nd, attorneys for Michael Sussman filed this motion, and there's a link to that, relating to evidentiary issues. I'll spare you the long and boring legal arguments, your humble author favours brevity, and get to the good stuff. The special counsel has issued trial subpoenas to the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee. The reason for calling the Clinton campaign and DNC as trial witnesses is to get them to testify to their assertion of attorney-client privilege under oath. 
As you might recall, the Clinton campaign, the DNC, Fusion GPS, Perkins Coy and Rodney Joffe have all made appearances in this case in order to fight against the production of records to Durham. We reported on that story stating Durham requested the court require production of records that included emails and attachments between and among Perkins Coy, Rodney Joffe and Fusion GPS. On behalf of the Clinton campaign, Robbie Mook, Hillary's campaign manager, and John Podesta, the Clinton campaign chair, who has already been interviewed by Durham, submitted declarations in support of the position that Fusion GPS was assisting with legal services and legal advice to Hillary for America. One would rightly assume then that those trial subpoenas were issued to Robbie Mook and John Podesta. Last Friday also saw this filing by Special Counsel Durham, which also addressed evidentiary issues. It explained a joint venture starting in June 2016 by Rodney Joffe and his team of researchers to collect derogatory information on Trump and his associates. Durham described the goal of the joint venture to be to gather and disseminate derogatory non-public information regarding the internet activities of Trump and his associates. This joint venture, what is also called a conspiracy, continued into August 2016, where Sussman, Rodney Joffe and agents of the Clinton campaign met at the Perkins Coy office of Mark Elias, where they discussed the same Alpha Bank allegations that Sussman would give to the FBI. The evidence will show that at the meeting, the parties agreed to conduct work in the hope that it would benefit the Clinton campaign, namely gathering and disseminating purportedly derogatory data regarding Trump and his associates' internet activities. In furtherance of this scheme, Durham states the evidence, much of which is already public, will show on August 12, 2016 meeting with a co-founder of Fusion GPS, Steele or Fritch, with Sussman, Elias and Rodney Joffe. This meeting was billed to the Clinton campaign. Joffe enlisted the CEO of an internet company to mine and analyse vast amount of internet traffic for any derogatory information he and his employees could find about Trump and his associates' internet connections and online communications. This included those already targeted by Fusion GPS. Joffe's coordination with his team of researchers, including those at Georgia Tech, one of whom has immunity, to compile what is now known as the Alpha Bank hoax. Joffe's continued meetings with Fusion GPS and Perkins Coy, in which he made clear his desire to make sure the VIPs at Perkins Coy and the Clinton campaign would be happy with the project. One final observation, DARPA and confidential data. The Sussman indictment mentions non-public internet data that was exploited by Joffe et al. for the purposes of their political hit job. This information was provided to Georgia Tech as part of a prospective contract with DARPA to identify the perpetrators of malicious cyber attacks and protect U.S. national security. After the indictment, it was revealed that Durham's team has interviewed former DARPA employees. Based on this information, we hinted that there might be charges relating to the misuse of classified government data from DARPA. We now have confirmation that this contract included classified information.
and he refers to an email obtained by Twitter sleuth Undead FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, where Andrew de Philippis, who is part of Special Counsel Durham's team, states that DARPA has no objections to Georgia Tech's provision of any records or information, both classified and unclassified, to our team and to the grand jury. Stay tuned. And that's the end of the article. And then on the 28th, um, Technofog puts out another article, Michael Sussman Evidentiary Hearing, the transcript, and more info on the investigation into Rodney Joffe. Yesterday, April 27th, there was a pre-trial hearing in the Michael Sussman case relating to various evidentiary issues. For the uninitiated Sussman, a former Perkins Coy partner and former attorney for the DNC Clinton campaign and Rodney Joffe, has been charged by special counsel John Durham with providing false statements to then FBI general counsel James Baker in the fall of 2016. And he puts a link into the actual indictment. We have the full transcript of yesterday's hearing link at the bottom. Here are some of the most notable disclosures. The special counsel's ongoing investigation into Rodney Joffe. The special counsel told the court that while Joffe and Sussman pushed the Alpha Bank stroke Yotaphone hoax to the CIA in February 2017, this false information was also pushed to another branch of government, to the legislative branch, at a later time. According to the special counsel, there were subsequent efforts after that to provide those materials to another branch of government, to the legislative branch, and so it wasn't as if these efforts simply stopped on February 9th of 2017. The special counsel's statement reminds us of this letter we discussed from Rodney Joffe's attorney to the attorneys for Michael Sussman, stating the Yota phone-related allegations percolated through various branches of the government and around the private sector after that date in various forms. Rodney Joffe's exposure and 18 USC 1031. The special counsel was understandably hesitant to get too deep into what they have on Rodney Joffe. However, when Sussman's attorneys brought up the fact that Joffe couldn't be charged due to the five-year statute of limitations, the special counsel responded that certain statutes of limitations are longer than five years. The court asked for an example and the special counsel referenced 18 USC 1031 which involves defrauding the government in connection with procurement and contract matters. This has to do with the Georgia Tech DARPA contract. Laura Sego from Fusion GBS will likely testify at trial. We previously reported that Sego was identified as the tech maven the government expected to call at trial. At this hearing was the first time we saw Sego's name explicitly mentioned as the Fusion GPS witness. Christopher Steele will not be a witness. Sussman's lawyer informed the court that the special counsel stated on April 26th that Steele is out of the country and isn't likely to be a witness. In fact, Steele is not cooperating with the special counsel. Finally, this statement from the special counsel relating to how the VIPs, meaning Perkins Coy and the Clinton campaign, wanted the internet data to be pulled for purposes of digging up information to damage Trump. 
We're limited on time today. Here is the link to the transcript. As to the evidentiary issues, the court took many of those under advisement, but will exclude from evidence the Hillary Clinton Alpha Bank tweet. We'll follow up with updates as always. So now let's look at more on the vax injuries. Epoch Times reports study links increase in emergency heart events with COVID-19 vaccine rollout. This was published yesterday. A new study found a correlation between an increase in emergency cardiovascular events among people under 40 years of age during the launch of Israel's COVID-19 vaccine programme. Published in the Nature Journal, researchers utilised data from the Israel National Emergency Medical Services between 2019 and 2021 that evaluated emergency or EMS calls among 16 to 39-year-olds across Israel with potential factors including COVID-19 infection and vaccination rates. They found that there was a 25% increase in EMS calls between January 21 to May 21 as compared with the years 2019 and 2020. Israel, which primarily uses Pfizer's mRNA vaccine, launched its COVID-19 vaccination program in late December 2020. The weekly emergency call counts were significantly associated with the rates of first and second vaccine doses administered to this age group but were not with COVID-19 infection rates. While not establishing causal relationships, the findings raise concerns regarding vaccine-induced undetected severe cardiovascular side effects and underscore the already established causal relationship between vaccines and myocarditis, a frequent cause of unexpected cardiac arrest in young individuals. And I won't read the rest of this. I need to move on to something else. But um, it's basically confirming what we've known by seeing all these young athletes dropping dead or collapsing on the court or the pitch. And then another report for Epoch from Epoch Times. What I've seen in the last two years is unprecedented. Physician on COVID vaccine side effects on pregnant women. Former Pfizer VP, adverse impacts on conception and ability to su sustain a pregnancy were foreseeable. This was from the 27th, updated yesterday. Dr. James Thorpe is an extensively published 68-year-old physician, MD, board certified in obstetrics and gynaecology as well as maternal fetal medicine, who has practiced obstetrics for over 42 years. Thorpe told the Epoch Times that he sees 6,000 to 7,000 high-risk pregnant patients a year and has seen many complications among them due to the COVID vaccines. I've seen many, many, many complications in pregnant women, in mums and in fetuses, in children, offspring, Thorpe said, fetal death, miscarriage, death of the fetus inside the mum. What I've seen in the last two years is unprecedented, Thorpe asserted. Thorpe explained that although he has seen an increase in fetal death and adver adverse pregnancy outcomes associated with the COVID-19 vaccination, attempts to quantify this effect are hampered by the imposition of gag orders on physicians and nurses that were imposed in September 2021, as reviewed in the publication Patient Betrayal, the Corruption of Healthcare Informed Consent and the Physician-Patient Relationship.
And the article goes on to say, from the first day of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine rollout on December 1st, 2020 through February 28th, 2021, 1,223 deaths and 42,086 adverse events were reported to Pfizer. Among the adverse events particularly alarming are the ones that affected pregnant women. The documents say that there were 274 pregnancy adverse events, of which 75 or 27% were serious. Again, I'm not going to read the whole article because there is another one that I want to cover on this topic. This one is from Red Voice Media. Wanted for crimes against humanity, Reiner Formick names global conspirators of the WEF. And it actually includes a video, but I'm just going to read what is mainly the transcript. Just like many people all over the world, Dr. Reiner Formick watched as numerous governments didn't hesitate in the slightest to hurl citizens into lockdowns over the COVID pandemic. That was just the start of social distancing, mask mandates and the highly controversial COVID-19 drug followed shortly after. Now, as it has been over two years since the pandemic started, instead of talks of getting back to normal, organisations like the World Economic Forum have promoted a future where machines and humans are one. Technology dictates sexual orientation and the population is significantly smaller. Hoping to shed some light on the WEF and their agenda, Dr. Fulmick warned about the steps already taken by founder Klaus Schwab. In the video, which is featured below, Dr. Fulmick noted, another important piece of information through the WEF, initiated by Klaus Schwab in 1971, Mr. Global has been training his own puppet since 1992. Through the Young Global Leaders Programme, Angela Merkel and Bill Gates were among the first class to graduate in the class of 1992. Even a large number of current leaders, politicians, predominantly weak personalities with mostly well-trained rhetorical skills also come from this programme, including Justin Trudeau in Canada and um, Macron, of course, who was illegitimately re-elected in France in the last week or so. Revealing what he believed to be the true cause behind the pandemic, the doctor added, against this background which increasingly more people are recognising, very large legal disputes have been set in motion or are now being set in motion in India, in South Africa, in the US, in Canada and in France, among others. Their goal is to hold those who are responsible for this pandemic accountable under both civil and criminal law. The Berlin Corona Committee already now has extremely incriminating evidence proving that this corona pandemic never had anything to do with health. Rather, Mr Global's actions are aimed solely at these goals. Destruction of regional economies to make the population dependent on Mr Global's global supply chains shifting the wealth of the world's population from the bottom to the top to the super-rich to Mr. Global population reduction. No matter what word was being used to describe the pandemic and the fallout from the government overreach, Dr. Fulmick concluded, you can call it genocide, as well as Mr. Global gaining total control over the remaining population and the installation of a world government under the UN, which is now in control of the World Economic Forum. We are dealing with megalomaniacs, psychopaths and sociopaths 
who must be stopped and in fact should have been stopped a very long time ago. But now the time has come. More and more people worldwide are waking up and realising who is pursuing which goals with this pandemic, even if the mainstream media is hiding it. Hundreds of thousands of people are taking to the streets all over the world. So, yes, absolutely. This is what we've been saying all along, that this was a bioweapon. And uh, interestingly, I also saw a report that there are VAERS reports being removed from the VAERS database. So finally, uh, something else that proves that the claim that Joe Biden got 81 million votes in the 2020 election is completely false um, we have Jill Biden's book in the news. Sales of Jill Biden biography are embarrassingly low. Twitter users react. Her husband is the most popular president in American history. And this was from theblaze.com. Uh, and it was actually published this morning. A new book about First Lady Jill Biden had embarrassingly low sales in its debut, debut week. Online commentators noted that perhaps the first family is not as popular as many were led to believe. On Friday, Politico published an article kvetching about how the White House press briefings have become a bore because Donald Trump is no longer in the Oval Office. Jen Psaki is very good at her job, which is unfortunate, a White House correspondent told Politico. And the work is a lot less rewarding because you're no longer saving democracy from Sean Spicer and his men's warehouse suit. Drawing with Jen just makes you look like an asshole. Buried in the article NPD Book Scan, which tracks book sales in the US, said that prominent books about Trump released in his first two years of office outsold Biden books during his first year and a half by what an official there said was essentially 10 to 1. A newly released biography about Jill Biden by two well-respected Associated Press journalists sold just 250 units in its first week, according to the company. Twitter reactions to the disappointing book sales had many commentators asking how the first lady to the most popular president in US history could have such pathetic sales numbers. President Joe Biden set a new record with 81,284,000 votes in the 2020 election. Columnist Tim Young pointed out 81 million votes, but Jill Biden's new biography only sold 250 total copies in one week. Republican congressional candidate Dr. Willie J. Montague added 81 million votes, though. Actor Nick Searcy declared 81 million votes for the most popular president in history. Talk show host Chris Steigel noted her husband got the most votes in the history of presidential elections, you know. Political commentator Cambry Kawahine Koa tweeted, How humiliating. Jill Biden's biography only sold 250 copies its first week. It blows my mind considering her husband is the most popular president in American history. At the moment, the only book featuring Jill Biden that people have some interest in is This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden and the Battle for America's Future. According to the book that, la that launches next week, Jill Biden did not want Kamala Harris as her husband's running mate. There are millions of people in the United States, the First Lady said, according to the book. Why do we have to choose the one who attacked Joe? 
So there you have it. The most popular president's wife just cannot sell any books about her life. Well, surprise, surprise. Anyway, um, glad to end on a light note there or a lighter note. Um, the Theatre of the Absurd continues um, as X-22 reports. You know, there's so much panic and the things that are rolling out seem to very much indicate that the White Hats are in control. So... We'll just have to continue watching the movie and see what happens. So thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me on Wednesday for another Cosmic Creating show. Just as a quick reminder, find me at the successalchemist.net, thewebalchemist.net, empoweredmanifestation.com. And thank you to Nancy for producing and also to Derek Condit of mysticalwares.com for sponsoring Cosmic Reality Radio and making all of this possible. So take care, be safe, bye for now. You have been listening to Cosmic Creating with Jan Shaw, updating current reality, a production of CosmicReality.com.